I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. In 1856, in Trenton, New Jersey, John Taylor, a wholesale grocer who would later become a state senator, brought a new smoked processed ham product to market. Flavored with various spices, salt, and sugar, it came in a log wrapped in a cloth sack. Taylor thought it would differentiate his ham from similar meats on the market and made it so consumers could quickly cut a slice of the ham without even removing it from the bag. In 1906, the U.S. government passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, and Taylor's wildly popular processed ham could no longer be called ham legally. So he rebranded to Pork Roll, even though some in New Jersey, to this day, still call it Taylor Ham. The fact that Pork Roll is not actually pork is just the start of the meat's contradictions. It's simultaneously crispy and chewy, It's overwhelmingly salty without overwhelming the eggs and cheese it routinely shares a sandwich with. It looks a lot like Canadian bacon, but it's cut thicker and lacks the liquid smoke aftertaste. And though it swerves into the mystery meat realm of Spam, it doesn't taste like a processed meat, at least when you do it right. Which finally brings me to my point. The only thing that warms a New Jerseyan's heart more than cutting off someone in traffic, or maybe the intro to this song, is digging into a pork roll breakfast sandwich on a hungover morning. And making a good pork roll sandwich should be as easy as snagging a roll, slicing it up, putting a few notches on the side so it doesn't curl, and frying it on a skillet. But finding a solid pork roll sandwich where I am right now, in New York City, a geographical stone's throw from the Garden State, a mere 30 miles from my own favorite purveyor of pork roll, shout out to Bagel Masters in Shrewsbury, New Jersey, is almost impossible. Bodegas and bagel shops that churn out dozens of superlative bacon, egg, and cheeses every day will deliver pork roll that tastes like strips of fried Ugg boot. It's like the meat log inexplicably loses its magic when it crosses over the Hudson. But finally, in my quest for comparable pork roll, I found Court Street Grocer in Carroll Gardens. Okay, I have this amazing looking pork roll sandwich right in front of me. I am from the Jersey Shore, so I generally get my pork roll on an everything bagel. It's very basic, fluffy eggs, cheese, and two perfectly fried slices of pork roll stacked on top of one another. That is the way to do it. It maintains its integrity. It has that deep pink coloring. It's crispy in the right spots. This would totally pass back home. This would fly. You you could serve this at a Jersey deli and no one would know the difference. Uh, Court Street nails it as they normally do. Great sandwiches. Which brings us to this episode's central conceit. We have long championed the idea that you don't need to literally travel to have a worthwhile travel experience. And food in particular 
can help transport you to another city, another country, or in the case of me and the pork roll, right back home. And the people out there who bring regional staples to brand new cities in order to spread their culture or cater to homesick transplants are definitely worth celebrating. So we're gonna do that today by sharing the stories of a handful of individuals who have dedicated themselves to maintaining old traditions in a brand new city. And we're starting with another Brooklyn outpost slinging a highly specific regional pork product with a staggeringly dedicated cult following. My name is Joe Boyle. I'm from Oak Park, Illinois. I'm co-owner of Dog Day Afternoon. And my name is Jarrett Kerr, or Jay, and uh, Joe's buddy, and we love hot dogs. It's true. In South Slope, Brooklyn, on the lower left-hand corner of Prospect Park, you'll find Dog Day Afternoon, about two blocks away from the filming location of the Al Pacino classic, from which it gets its name. Inside, you'll find a rack of kitschy records for sale, a playable Pac-Man machine, a wall of pop culture references around the Chicago orbit, including John Candy and Steve Martin from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and, most importantly, some of the best Chicago-style hot dogs outside of Chicago. And this is a hot dog with a very specific list of parameters. Well, the first thing, the most important thing, is the Vienna beef hot dog. If you don't have the Vienna beef hot dog, that's you're, you just don't have, you don't have a Chicago-style hot dog. Like, there's all the toppings, of course, you know, the poppy seed bun, the, the tomato, the celery salt, the sport peppers, the onions, the dill pickle. But the Vienna beef hot dog is the best hot dog on the market, without a doubt, man. Like, it really is. And we get natural casing dogs, which a lot of hot dog places, especially in New York, they don't do a natural casing dog with that snap effect. And it's just, I mean, it's leagues above any other dog you're gonna have that's out there. But I mean, the other thing that makes a Chicago dog, I think, is that uh, obsessiveness of the details. You know, like Joe's saying, there's these very particular ingredients you have to have. And um, what I think is really funny is we have customers come in who are from Chicago, and they walk in and they immediately say, okay, uh, this better be a damn good hot dog. You know, yeah. like, you guys can't Love screw that. this up. You know, and I can't think of any restaurant you ever walk into where you walk up to the counter, you're like, your pizza better not suck. <laughs> you know, like these yeah. guys are super, like, on it. And if they look at it and you do one thing that's out of place, they will make fun of you. People take this stuff extremely seriously. And Dog Day isn't just about the dogs. They have several Chicago comfort staples that are hard, if not impossible, to find outside of the prairie state. Like Polish sausage and old-style beer. Around St. Patrick's Day, we're going to have a, a staple of Chicago, which is the Green River Soda. Uh, so, you know, we try to bring in details when we can. And Joe's, you know, Joe's got a, a couple brothers that live in Chicago, and he'll ask them to drive down and bring us old style, or, you know, come down and bring us some pizza puffs or something. Yeah, luckily they have children now, so they have minivans, so they just use the back of it to just bring like cases of old style. And what we do is- They must be like, Uncle Joe likes beer, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and the Orange Whip, a creamsicle style milkshake made famous by the Blues Brothers. John Candy, who's one of our favorites, uh, has like a line in it where he says, uh, you know, orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip, orange whip, three orange whips. So I was just thinking as an ode to John Candy, who we love, who's on our wall. Dog Day lets Brooklynites take a quick culinary trip to Chicago, but it also gives Chicago transplants a little taste of home. 
you'll, you'll see. I mean, there are a couple spots around. There's not that many. But um, people will come in here and honestly just be shocked that they discovered us, shocked that we have Jardinier. You know, uh, oh, my God, you have the hot beef? Do you dip it in the au jus? Like, they're, they're crazy about it. And um, I think what's really cool is that they become very quickly a, a supporter and a fan, and they bring all their friends. They tell everyone they know that's from Chicago. You've got to go. you got to go. And it's funny, man. Like, people come in, and they really, uh, they really go wild about it. And... We have these regulars, and this is not in any way a, um, a derogatory thing. These guys call themselves Romanian-American gypsies. They're from Chicago, a lot of them, and they come in in droves, and they spend hundreds of dollars, yeah. and, uh, you know, it, they're even like, I'll get that there, oh, I'll have that there. And they all look yeah. like Mike Ditka, like yeah. all of them. They're, like, thick and hairy and, yeah. like, and wonderful. <laughs> and wonderful. Yeah, so they, they're just going to get us through the winter. <laughs> but, but it's exciting for you me. Know. And as I was saying before, it's like when I, we have this little bench right outside where I just watch them, and I, like, kind of hide myself, and I watch them eat. And there's always this kind of, like, nod and smile after the first bite where it just, just makes me feel absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Where it's like all of it's worth it, and it just makes me want to just, like, work harder and make it better. And three miles north, Austin transplant Autumn Stanford is, for her part, giving Texans on the East Coast a little taste of home at Brooklyn Kalachi. When we first opened, we would just have lines out the door of people from Texas who live here now, and they would all wear their different college gear, whether they had their A&M gear on or their UT gear. And it was really fun for everyone to like talk in line about where they grew up and where they got kolaches. So kolaches, by the way, are basically breakfast pastries, but we'll get to the specifics in a minute. There's people who order a bunch because their friend who moved here from Texas just had a baby and they wanted to bring them something that was really comforting. So they're definitely um, a comfort item for people who are raised eating them, but they're also just like a great carb and that's always comforting, so. <laughs> and Brooklyn kolache isn't just important to profile because their kolaches are amazing. Kalachis are an interesting case study in beloved regional foods here in the States. So kalachis are super regional even inside Texas. The kalachis that you get in Houston are gonna be totally different than the kalachis that you're used to getting in Dallas or Austin. Traditional Czech kalachis are sweet. They're filled with sweet fillings, usually fillings that have a shelf life, like dried uh, preserved made out of dried apricot or poppy seed. You see the farmer's cheese or like a sweetened cream cheese is the Americanized version. So those are traditional klatchis. But the Czech communities in Texas started stuffing sausage inside the klatchi dough to take out in the fields because there's a lot of agriculture work. There's huge population of Czech immigrants that moved into central Texas. And so if you go to Texas, klatchis are kind of like donuts. They're at gas stations, they're at fancy bakeries. Kolaches are kind of road trip food because a lot of the Czech towns that are famous for their kolaches are in between Austin and Houston or Austin and Dallas. So you go, you stop midway, you go to the bathroom. These gas stations have these amazing bakeries inside and you stock up in kolaches, you bring a bunch home, put them in your freezer and snack on them throughout the week. So this phenomenon we've been looking at, this migration of a super specific and really beloved regional food, goes two layers deep here, with Autumn bringing kolaches to New York from Texas because Czech transplants brought them here from Europe. And the most famous kolache pit stop in the Lone Star State is the Czech stop in the town of West Texas. 
In case you missed it, I actually went there for our deep dive into gas station food. Let's play a clip. It smells so good in there. It's like you get all of the meat smells and all of the bakery smells all into one. They do barbecue in the back. A lot of smells, a lot of people, a lot of people super enthusiastic about the check stop. Good little spot right next to a Sonic. Don't go to Sonic. Stop here instead. Galveston, for many, many years, was one of the largest ports on the East Coast. So tons of people migrate through Galveston and ended up in agricultural areas in Texas. And it's not just Czech, though Texas has the largest Czech population in the United States, but it's also heavily German and Eastern European influence. So when you look at Texas cuisine in general, it's largely German, Czech, and Mexican. So you have smoked meats, sausages, and spicy jalapenos, queso, those types of ingredients. And so they're all influenced by Eastern Europe and Mexico. As the cliche goes, the United States is, of course, a country built by immigrants. In every town across the nation, you'll see the DNA of regional cuisine drawing influence from people who came here from somewhere else. Think pierogies in Pittsburgh, Lutefisk in Minnesota, West African dishes infused in Gullah cooking in Charleston. We could go on forever. But on the flip side, our most notable culinary export is probably the Big Mac. Though there are other transplants, aside from Grimace, making quote-unquote American food abroad. Hi, I'm uh, Craig Carlson, talking to you from Paris. Um, I'm the owner of two American diners called Breakfast in America, both located in the heart of the city. And um, I've written a book about it, Pancakes in Paris, and actually wrote a second book called Let Them Eat Pancakes, so I might as well get them both in. (laughs) A few blocks away from the Seine, in a city that routinely snubs its nose at the prospect of American cuisine, you'll find what can only be described as a quintessential Americana diner. Red vinyl booths, pancakes stacked short and tall, milkshakes and coffee mugs and root beer. It's breakfast in America, literally. French people thought, oh, all you Americans do is fast food, you know, uh, McDonald's and Burger King and Subway. And I said, no, there's this whole other tradition. There are often these theme restaurants, you know, you can see in Disneyland or whatever, and, they're, and they're, they just don't feel real. You know, they just feel like it's corporate and they're just trying to create America. I want the whole vibe to really feel American. Craig got the admittedly novel idea of opening a 24-7 American diner in Paris while back home on a quick trip when he realized he truly missed the comfort of a solid greasy spoon. I had this big breakfast with uh, buckwheat pancakes and ham steak and eggs and sourdough toast. And and the minute it arrived at my table, I went, oh my God, this is the one thing that I missed in Paris. And I really literally had like this aha moment. I was like, I'll open a diner. (laughs) I'll call it breakfast in America. I swear, it happened just like this. Because if you don't know, the French do breakfast a little differently. They have a, a cafe and a cigarette, you know? <laughs> That's their breakfast in the morning. And so um, I just I just knew for me, per- Paris, I could live there forever as long as I had my breakfast. I think there's sometimes something that connects us to that comfort food that becomes so important and you don't realize it till you're away from it. And uh, I think that's what happened to me. But even the French aren't immune to a good lumberjack special. And Craig's diners quickly started to develop a following among Parisians. 
And I remember the first time, it was about 10 o'clock at night, we've been open for a couple years, and a French guy goes, uh, you know, can I order pancakes at this hour? I'm like, well, sure, of course, why not? He says, but, but they're breakfast food and it's dinner right now. <laughs> and I said, no, but that's the whole point. You know, you're, you're in an American diner, you can have it whenever you want. There's no pretension, you know, um, we have, we have dancers coming from uh, the Moulin Rouge, you know, that, you know, very stylish and chic. And then we just have, you know, working class guys, uh, you know, coming in and having their coffee and saying, hey, let me try a bed cake, you know. Though a solid portion of his customers are indeed Americans looking for a quick escape back home. But I can tell you the number of times you'll hear somebody go, uh, you know, the pancake arrives and they go, oh my God, I missed you so much. You know, this kind of feeling of like an old friend. I think that kind of connection with food and your home country and your family, especially if you're away from them, uh, it just bonds you to that. You know, I have one customer who's been going through some chemotherapy in American living in France. And whenever he's done with it, he comes straight to the diner and he has blueberry pancakes. <laughs> and it's something that makes your heart smile. You know, it makes you just, when, when you put the pancake, the blueberry pancake in your mouth with the real maple syrup, it's almost a healing process as well. You know, it's just, just having something that's has an association with a, a, a good time. It just triggers all these things in your brain of like, this is good. <laughs> this feels great, you know? And I, I think we need that. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, our show concludes with the return of one of our favorite guests ever, Chef Yia Vang. You should definitely stick around. So far, we've covered Chicago hot dogs in Brooklyn, American diners in Paris, and how food can be so important to feeling connected to your community, your home, your people. But nowhere, debatably, is this more pronounced than in the Twin Cities, where Chef Yia Vang of Union Mung Kitchen and the soon-to-be-opened Benai helps keep his own culture alive through food. This is his story. Here in the uh, Twin Cities, um, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, there's about 72,000, 73,000 Hmong people in this area. It's the most dense population of Hmong people in the whole United States. And the reason we came to the United States was after the Vietnam War, a lot of the Hmong people were displaced, and so they became refugees. When the U.S. troops came in, they couldn't have boots on the ground, so the Hmong people were hired out as paramilitary troops. They were trained by the CIA and then the American government uh, to be a proxy army for the U.S. Army. And then after the war was over, uh, our people were left behind. And then there was a whole genocide of our people, and eventually a lot of our people became refugees in uh, Thailand. And there's this little refugee camp in Thailand called Vinai, and from 75 to 92, there was about 90,000 refugees that ended up there after the Vietnam War. And then out of those 90,000, 90% 90 of them were Hmong, and out of those 90%, majority of them ended up here in the Midwest. And that was the refugee camp that my parents met in in 77. They got married in 78, 
and I was born there in 84. A bunch of my siblings were born in between there. And then in 88, we left and came to America. And so Vinai is actually the name of our first brick and mortar that we're building out. And so it's an a homage to mom and dad. And I tell people it's a love letter to mom and dad. Hmong food or Hmong dishes are based on four things. You have your rice, you have your protein, you have your vegetable, which sometimes comes in a broth form, and then you have your hot sauce. Those four elements creates the core of what it is to be Hmong food. So I tell people that Hmong food isn't a type of food, it's a philosophy of food, it's a way of thinking about food. So you're talking about a group of people that for thousands and thousands of years have always been displaced, moving from one place to another. And the reason why that our people always moved constantly from a place to another place was for two reasons. One, we were unwanted in where we were. So we a lot of our people lived in the hills, especially in Southeast Asia. So Thailand, Laos, Vietnam. And uh, if you trace 7,000 years ago, our people were found in the Yellow River Basin in what is known now as uh, Southern China. And then the second reason why we were constantly moving was our people were agricultural people, were farmers. So we always moved where the land was the best. And a lot of times we would end up being displaced in the mountains and in the hills. And that's where we had to learn how to farm. And so wherever we went, we took and we gleaned a little bit from the culture that was around us. And we used that to forge into our own culture. And so as Hmong people here in the Midwest, up in the north, in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul area, we eat differently than the Hmong people that live out in Fresno, California, in Sacramento. We eat differently than the Hmong people who live down in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, or the Hmong people who live in even central Wisconsin. We use the land that's around us. We use the animals that are around us. We use the products around us. We use the produce that are around us. And that's what being Hmong is about. It's taking what is given to you, taking what you can forage, taking what you can find, and creating something with that. Not for yourself, you're creating a platform so that the next generation gets to build upon that. If you want to know our people, know our food, because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. It actually tells the story of where we've been. It would be passed down from generation to generation, generation to generation. And when you have that, you don't have any written recipes. But what you do have is one, like a mom that would teach a daughter, then who would then teach her daughter, then would teach her daughter. And that's how our people, you know, told stories of our, our history was through the food that we ate. And so when you think about that and you trace back into some of the old country dishes or the old world dishes that we do, well, you know what that does is it actually tells the history of our people. And so we pay homage to our people, to our history, by actually eating these dishes. So my father always taught me, dad always said, you got to know who you are by, from your past to know where you are, to know where you're going. So for us to know who we are, I had to go to our past and find these old country, like, you know, old world style recipes that mom and dad taught us growing up. And then that kind of got me to where it was a present of where we are now. It's to partake in the whole history of our people. And that's like why I love sharing our food with people, different people, people that are outside our culture, because we get to share a little bit of our history with them. And so when people come in to eat with us, what I want to do is, because I, I truly believe that food helps innate memories inside of us. I want them to eat with us and then go, wow, that takes me back to sitting at my mom's table and having a dish that tastes like this, but it's still mung. You know, I mean, there's a dish I eat uh, that every time I eat, 
I'm a 10 year old boy. I, I remember that day, it was a hot summer day. I'm sitting down and it's a simple dish. I'm sitting down by my grandma and she's picking the meat off and putting in sticky rice and putting it in my mouth. I'm a 10 year old boy. My grandma's passed away for the last like 10 years. But every time I eat that dish, I still am sitting with grandma being fed by her. And so for Hmong people who come and eat with us, with the dish we make, we go, hey, I want you to realize a little bit of our past that's in here, to know that we are right here in our present, and this gives a trajectory of uh, what our future will look like. The Hmong community here in the Twin Cities is super knit tight. And it's also like, because there's only 18 clans, which like each clan is like a family. I love Marvel movies in uh, Thor Ragnarok, where at the end, you know, um, Asgard is destroyed and, you know, and they're all on the ship together. And what they realize, Thor realizes, like, it's not about a certain place, but it's about the people. It's what the people that makes it home. As dorky as it is, I giggled in the inside because that's what it means to be Hmong. It's never about land. It's never about a country with borders. It's not even about, like, a government that hosts it. it it's the people. Our people have been governed by different other governments. Our people have been killed off. Our people have been hunted. Our people have done a lot. But it's at the end of the day, it's our people together. So, you know, a lot of friends growing up, a lot of white friends would say to me, man, it must suck to grow up without a country of your own. And I said, you know, the, the thing is, being Hmong doesn't mean that I have to have a country of own. We have our people. And regardless, wherever our people go, that's where our that's where our family is so i remember as a kid i would always tell dad dad you know this kind of stinks we don't have a country and my dad would say son wherever you go when there's another Hmong person there's another Hmong family that's your country that's your people and so i just feel like our people we're unstoppable you can't hold us to a certain country to a certain boundary to a certain border you can't do that because the spirit of our people constantly they lives within our people We want to thank Chef Yia Vang and everyone from Brooklyn Kalachi, Dog Day Afternoon, and Breakfast in America for sharing their stories and making so many people out there feel a little bit closer to home. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to have another pork roll. Yeah. This show is produced by myself and Mia Fask, edited and mixed by the otherworldly Dean White and Abby Austria. Special thanks to all of my bosses, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, and Emily Feld. That's it for us. Put your tray tables up, leave your shoes on, and we'll see you next week. Bye.